Welcome to the Currency.News Energy Matters podcast, powered by Pinergy. Hello and welcome to Energy Matters, a podcast series brought to you by The Currency and powered by Pinergy. My name is Ian Keogh and over the course of this series we're investigating the Irish energy sector, how we've reached the point we are in and what we could have done differently in the past. But we're also looking at what needs to be done now and what the future holds. And in this episode, we're exploring what Ireland can learn from Denmark, a real superpower in terms of renewable energy. And to do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Lisa holmgard Larson, a Senior Project Manager for Renewable Wind Energy at State of Green, which is a public-private body tackling climate change. Lisa, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Just to begin with, we might set the context. I, I mentioned there that Denmark is a superpower in terms of renewables. It's a world leader, the world leader. Uh, but it's been a long journey, I think, Lisa, for you to get to this point now. Can you just trace back uh, how, how you've come to be where you are now? Yeah, you're completely right. Um, first of all, it's important to say that it's been a 50-year-long journey, very much of hard work. And that's an important message to also convey to other countries that are trying to transition their own societies. It is a long journey. Hopefully other countries can go faster by learning from um, good experiences and bad experiences. But it's been a long journey. The other thing is that in the beginning, it wasn't really much about the like, being green and the renewable movement that we know today and the greater good of society. Back then, it was about being independent of very expensive imported fossil fuels. It was in the 70s for Denmark that the energy crisis hit, and we realized we had to do something else unless we wanted to, well, lack energy, basically, to heat our homes. Yeah, so it wasn't just, oh, we we need to be green. It was more about... I suppose, you know, self-sufficiency, energy independence. But why why did you zone in on, you know, wind? So we, we went into different directions back then. There was a heavy discussion on what direction to go with. And we decided to go with wind and not, for example, nuclear. Nuclear was under heavy debate back then uh, in terms of how safe it is and can we experience... Uh, disasters, like other disasters we have seen across the world also since then. So it's actually banned and we are still not allowed to actually implement nuclear. We also established our own natural natural gas fields in the North Sea. Some of them we still have today. So that was kind of like the a very good example of how it was not about being green because natural gas is, as we know today, not a very clean energy source. But we decided to go with wind because we saw a lot of potential there. Also because there was a great movement in local societies around wind turbines. So you had these local farmers, local small companies that would invent wind turbines and put them up on their fields, near their houses, plug them into their local grids, experiencing how this could actually work. Uh, so, so it was that real sense of a movement. But to, I mean, the context. What's really interesting, I think, about what Denmark has done is not just building loads of of wind turbines and planting them offshore, but you you own the technology. You know, companies like Vestas are manufacturing wind turbines. Orsted is the biggest developer of offshore wind power in the world. So you you have it almost like from the farm to the fork. You you own the entire industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's taken a long time to build up. One of the advantages is that they these players have been forced to working together from the beginning. So that's a very close knit network of Danish players. 
one of the reasons is that in the beginning, because we saw different countries kind of moving in the direction of wind, US as well, Germany, other countries, where we had the advantage over, for example, let's say Germany, is that Germany, as well, some of us know, uh, very uh, strict in terms of rules and regulations and the frameworks and the technological development. But what we did in Denmark was just put something up and test it and learn from that. Just go with that and have public support for that. Now, as we moved into like a semi-industry, the government said, well, we need some kind of assurance that this technology is actually proven and that it's safe. So we need certifications. And they put the certification responsibility on the universities so that they forced the industry to actually work together with the universities in the very early days. And this collaboration has been going on ever since and has created a very high level of trust between different industry actors and with the universities. And this dynamic is very important to maintain also a broad industry in Denmark because you have all these actors very geographically close to each other and used to working together and with a very high level of trust. Uh, and in, just in, in terms of uh, numbers, Lisa, I mean, what, what percentage now of your electricity is coming from renewables? So if we look at renewables in general, it's 68%. This is 2020 numbers. This is the newest numbers we have from the Danish Energy Agency. Um, if we look in at wind more specifically, it was 47% in 2019, dropped a couple of percentages actually in since then, the, the, the following two years, due to lack of wind resource, basically. And now it's going up again this year. We're expecting it to hit somewhere just below 50%. This is in the electricity grid. Okay. Um, now, listen, you mentioned at the start that you had that discussion 50 years ago about whether you go with wind or nuclear and you decided upon wind. Um, mm. Did you look at, or have you looked at other things in the intervening period, such as more onshore wind, solar, hydro, or even biogas, or have you really just made a bet wind? No, and I think it's important to say that even though some of these industries sometimes um, picture it as a battle between different technologies, it's very important to say that we need them all. I mean, our targets and the global targets are really ambitious, and we need everybody's input to actually reach those goals. Now, with that said, in Denmark, we don't, we still don't have nuclear and it's still banned. There's been discussions in terms of should it still be banned. Um, we don't have any, let's say, hydro as our neighbors in Norway and Sweden. We're a very flat country, so we don't really have any uh, water streams to, uh, to pick up the hydro energy from. So I think it's around 0.1% of our energy mix. Um, biogas, we have a lot of um it's in our gas consumption it's about 20 percent right now and it's gonna go up to 80 percent in 2030 the rest is uh natural okay gas. i mean if you look at ireland our target for 2030 is to get 80 percent of electricity produced from renewables we're at about 36 and a half percent in 2019 the last data we have and wind put in about 85 percent of this so we're on our we're on our journey at the moment obviously well behind where Denmark is but you mentioned there you want to get it up by 2030 I imagine the plan is to be almost a hundred percent energy secure and independent over the longer term yeah so I mean if we look at like, if we we take a starting point in electricity by 2027 
we expect to hit 100% renewables in electricity. We're also going to maybe be net exporter by then. If we look at the general energy mix, we want to reduce by 70% in 2030. That's compared to 1990 levels, 1990, sorry. Um, and by 2050, we want to go net zero. There's been talks about putting that a bit up on a more ambitious, ambitious stage so that we would go net zero already in 2040. But I mean, it's been part of the election that we currently, um, the, that we just had. But um, yeah, we'll see. And I, I, I was struck, I was looking at some videos on YouTube and reading some clips about Denmark's plans for energy islands. Mm. Uh, you might just explain to our, our listeners what that is um, because, you know, it's hard to explain, it's hard to unless you visualise but what it is and what the plan is around that and the scale of investment uh, that, that Denmark is putting into these so-called energy islands. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, so as you just mentioned, it's quite technical, but to put it in very simple terms, we are going to create an island, <clears throat> sorry, and we're also going to use an existing island. Now, the benefit of the island is that you have this island and to that island will be hundreds of turbines, wind turbines, connected to it. And from the turbines to the island will go electricity. On the island, some of the electricity will be transformed into green hydrogen in a process that's popularly called power to X. And from that island, the hydrogen and the electricity will be transferred not only to Denmark, but also to our neighboring countries. And the benefit is that if you were to go in the classical direction and just connect all the turbines directly to a point on shore in Denmark, it will create a massive load on that point in the energy grid in Denmark. And the point is that we have too much energy that, to use ourselves, so we want to export it. And so instead of investing all this money in our own energy grid just to be a transit country for the energy, we can just do it directly from the island and uh, save that money. Okay, and I mean, it's tens of billions of euro going into this. It's a, it's a monstrous investment. Yes, it is. Um, and we ha already have a lot of private financing for it. The industry is ready. What's lagging behind right now is the regulatory frameworks for the tender processes, for example, and the contractual frameworks for what do you do when you have interconnections from all these wind turbines to different countries who should be prioritized. And like this, this whole setup, like it, the, the, it, it doesn't come as a surprise that the regulatory frameworks are what's lacking behind. But yeah, the industry is ready. The technology is there. Investments are there. I mean, in Ireland, uh, we like the ambition of, you know, more renewables and, redu you know, reducing our reliance upon fossil fuels and gas. Um, but whenever we talk about building something, there's always massive planning log jams. Uh, you know, people appeal any sort of major capital projects. Have you? Did you have that sort of issues? Was was there many objections to building such large, even energy islands or wind farms? Yeah, there are some. Um, it so the different different perspectives when you go onshore versus offshore, right? So if we talk about offshore, which this is basically uh, the energy island, is going to be based eighty kilometers plus out offshore and that's not going to be complaints from neighbors like land-based neighbors because you, you cannot see it from shore what the challenge is is the dialogue between different uses of the sea so this the maritime spatial planning process it is based at 
the Danish Energy Agency. And what they do is they want to minimize the risk for the developers. So already before the tender processes start, they will have dialogues with fishermen and um, the shipping industry and the military to make sure that they find the best possible placement for these, both the island and the turbines. Now, there's a distinction distinction also between the the, the building phase and the um, like post uh, installation. So, in the, in the installation phase, there's also a lot of concerns in terms of how much disturbance will you cause on sea mammals, for example, and fish and um, shellfish and stuff like that. Yeah. And of course, you'll have to have dialogues as well with environmental groups and nature groups. But the Danish Energy Agency handles that post, uh, sorry, uh, pre-tender to actually reduce the risk for the developers. Okay. And in, in terms of the government's role in all of this, and obviously you said it's at, at the offset, it's a really key point that this has been a 50-year project. Mm. Uh, but in terms of the government's policy, I mean, have they put in place supports? Have they given tax breaks? You mentioned there that they try and mitig- mitigate the risk for developers. But what's the government's role in, in, in this sector? Um, financially, if we look at the offshore turbines themselves, we just recently had uh, the first tender that's actually going to give money to the state for building turbines, right? So it's basically subsidy-free now. And it's a good business case for the for the government. If we look at the island itself, I haven't seen numbers yet in terms of the business case for it. I'm not sure the industry are willing to communicate that yet. Uh, it's going to be part of the tender process, I assume, whether or not there's going to be um, yeah, but but even even Lisa, even over the years, I mean, when when they when you were starting this fifty years ago, I mean, did the state put a lot of tax breaks or incentives, or did it use its own money to get it to the place where you are now? Yes, a lot of subsidies. Um, the state could see a lot of potential in the industry, and it's now turned out to be a really good export case for Denmark. And so the the subsidies was kind of an investment as to into where we are today. I mean, it's taking a long time, right? But now it's going to make money for the state. So now there's actually been been a discussion in terms of, is it making too much money for the state? Like, so the the industry needs to obviously still have money to innovate, to put into research and development, to get more employees, to produce all of this wind energy that the world needs. I mean, we lack capacity, production capacity as it is already today. And if... If the cost gets too low, it will hit the value chain hard and it won't have money to invest in all these things that are necessary. And that will also, I mean, if we have a strong industry and an industry that's actually able to supply all these wind turbines also globally, it will benefit societies at, at a wider scale. So we have a discussion in terms of how much money should it actually make for the state or should it just, I mean, all go to the value chain? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great it's a great debate to be having. Um, obviously, as I said, Denmark world leader. What advantages uh, does Denmark have over other countries? Is it the fact that you just did it first, or is it more the? I mean, obviously, you've access to the sea and there's wind. But what advantages does Denmark have over other companies trying to uh, copy the model? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> one of the things is, as I briefly touched upon earlier as well, the very close knit industry. And the fact that we have actually all of the actors 
gathered here. We have the whole value chain and they're used to working together. So you have all these tiers in the industry where the bottom tier kind of collects products from like uh, bolts and screws and all sorts of stuff in the like in the lower level. And they create packages up through the tiers. So, for example, Vestas won't have to deal with all of them. Um, but the benefit of them all being so close together and having worked together so closely for the past 30, 40 years, most of them actually like work together in the same companies, people shift companies back and forth, right? It's just creating a really good collaboration and also development-wise. So, for example, if we take back to the universities, you have a public-funded um, research and development, which is really important for the industry, and you have the industry-financed research and development, but they can still, even though they're competitors, they can use, for example, Vestas and Siemens can use the same research facility to, um, to develop components or better processes and not having to fear um, industry secrets being leaked between these projects because the high level of trust that's been developed through all these years have been established. No, it's great to see that level of collegiality and, and all of those companies working together. It's not just something you see in many industries. Um, obviously, you went on this journey uh, due to the energy crisis in the 70s. We have another energy crisis now. You're obviously very close to Russia. You still need a bit of Russian gas. I mean, how has the energy crisis impact upon Denmark in over, over the last six to eight months? Hmm. Uh, and what sort of contingency plans have you put in place? Well, uh, it's it's a hard question to, to answer now completely because we're just entering into winter and it still remains to be seen how hard the energy crisis is going to hit us now. I mean, summertime, easier to handle because the weather is warm, right? Um, and it's now looking to be a fairly warm winter as well, which is a good thing. But... It's important to say that natural gas in Denmark is only 14% of our energy consumption, primarily goes into district heating and production. And Russia has, like, they've already caught gas to, to, to Denmark. And there are ways around that, some sort, right? Because you can, you can still get Russian gas, but just through a middleman, yeah. right? Um, yeah. But in principle, Denmark is self-sufficient in natural gas we have a gas field that's temporarily down until next year but in principle we are self-sufficient but we are part of the european gas net and there's a solidarity principle so we cannot we cannot be self-sufficient until eu is self-sufficient so in then it's not a danish problem it's more of a european problem however Europe has taken um, taken on a strategy to fill up the gas storages. And in Denmark, the tactic has been to influence as much as we can nationally. So we are speeding up our energy island plants and we're also speeding up our district heating plants. So in Denmark, two-thirds of Danes are in the district heating system and two-thirds of the district heating is green. And so we want more people on the district heating system because most of the people that are today not on a district heating system is heating they're they're heating their houses with natural gas, which is not a good business case today, and it's well under attack, yeah. right? So we want more people to be on the district heating system. So before New Year's, it's the plan to have all the municipalities send out a letter to all the Danes 
saying, can you get on the district heating system? And if so, when can you do that? And if not, what can you do otherwise to get rid of natural gas? And are there any support schemes for you to apply for? Yeah. Um, listen, a couple of quick questions towards the end, uh, Lisa. I mean, we always talk about the high electricity prices in Ireland. I think we're the fourth most expensive in Europe. But yet, electricity is even more expensive in Denmark, which which is staggering considering you're generating so much of it. <laughs> why, why, why is it so expensive? Yeah, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's tricky, right? Because in principle, we don't have expensive electricity. Electricity is actually really cheap, but we have a lot of taxes on it, which is what makes it expensive. And the rationale behind that is if it is an actual cost to people, it is an incentive to use less of it. And this is also, I mean, this has always been the principle in Denmark. And nowadays it's just a, an even bigger incentive for Danes to invest in energy efficiency measures in their own houses, like retrofitting their houses with um, insulating them better or new windows or yeah. or whatnot, and uh, just turning down the heat. There's been a public requirement for all public buildings, a state requirement for all public buildings, to turn down the heat to 19 degrees, for example, except for uh, elder, elder homes and small daycare. But other than that, yeah, there there if measures taken to to incentivize people to to use less. That's 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 really interesting because you know here we have lots of campaigns and we try to appeal to people's good nature to try and get them to shift and there is some tax breaks around retrofitting. But what you've basically done is you've made electricity expensive in the hope that people don't use too much of it or go or yeah no it's a really going into people's pockets exactly i think one of the most downloaded apps these days is the one called um directly translated energy prices or electricity prices so you can download the app as a regular citizen and you can see the electricity prices 48 hours ahead on an hourly basis and people are using it a lot to kind of time their dishwashers or washing machines or whatnot, or uh, charging their electric vehicles. And this debate has become a dinner table discussion, which is really convenient because it's a hard debate to take from an industry perspective because it's just such a high technological and very complex industry. So the fact that people are engaging themselves in, this, in these dynamics is just a very positive yeah. side effect of, of a very uh, unfortunate situation. Um, so listen, what's the plan? Obviously, 50 years, massive investment to get to this world leader stage. What's the plan and the roadmap for Danish energy and electricity over the next couple of decades? Mm, more wind and solar, yeah. <laughs> basically. Um, no, so we want to, like going up to 2030, we want to quadruple our, um, our capacity within onshore wind and onshore solar. And by 2030 as well, we're going to go zero on coal. We had a couple of coal-fired power plants that were supposed to go off-grid already next year due to the current crisis. It's been postponed a couple of years, but still the ambition is 2030 to go completely off coal. We also want to electrify as many sectors as possible. So we want to, for example, have power to X, green hydrogen, that is going to into uh, green methanol and green ammonia to fuel the transport sector, heavy transport, like shipping, um, trucks, uh, airplanes, stuff like that. And we also need to figure out how to electrify farming and agriculture. 
very uh, complex debate there, but that's like the overall sectors that we want to focus on. We also want to go with a greener district heating. So right now it's based a lot on biomass. We want to reduce biomass. It's renewable biomass, but it's still biomass. We want to reduce that and introduce electric heat pumps, like really large ones, not household ones, but industrial heat pumps. Uh, to electrify it as well. Okay, there's a lot going on there. Listen, finally, yeah. your own your own organisation, State of Green, you've actually got a delegation in Dublin uh, this week uh, mm-hmm. talking about offshore wind. What's the key message that you're going to be uh, getting across to the policymakers and the industry representatives that you meet uh, while your organisation is over here? Right, so we have the collaboration with the Foreign Ministry of Denmark and the embassy to arrange this trip. And the purpose is to create even, I mean, we have close connections with both UK and Ireland already, right? But we want to have that even closer net and inspire each other. I mean, it's also important to say we also need inspiration the other way around. We don't have all the solutions to go awful green transition in Denmark either. So the relationship between our nations is just really important. We are a lot, like we're similar in a lot of different ways. And the relationship between our nations are just so important that we want to inspire an even closer collaboration. So that's the main purpose. Great. Well, Lisa Holmgard Larson, uh, thank you very much for joining me here today on Energy Matters, a podcast series brought to you by The Currency and powered by Pinergy. Uh, Lisa, thank you very much. You're very welcome. You've been listening to the Currency.News Energy Matters podcast, powered by Pinergy.